Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, the Globe and Mail's Patrick Brethauer has all the details on the federal government hiring spree that's been going on for several years. Columnist Tasha Carradine has advice for the Trudeau Liberals. Team Poiliev is vicious. Take early retirement. Express Employment Professionals President Brent Paulington has some great advice for job seekers, starting with that resume. And orthopedic surgeon Dr. Cassandra Lane Dealwert tells us why she and other BC specialists have requested an emergency meeting with the health minister. So let's get started. Here is a couple of headlines that crossed our desk in the last couple of days. Nearly nine out of 10 Canadian jobs created during the pandemic were in the public sector. Report. And the next one was Ottawa's hiring spree is beyond measure. That the headline to an article written by our next guest, Patrick Brethauer, is tax and fiscal policy reporter with The Globe and Mail and joins us from Southern Ontario. Patrick, good morning and welcome. Good morning to you. Well, it's great to have you with us, Patrick. Let's talk about this hiring spree that you wrote so eloquently about in the Globe a few days ago. When did it start? Was it it at the beginning of the Trudeau era, or was that a trend that was already in place? Coincidentally enough, it does seem to uh, track quite closely to the election of the Liberals. So uh, in the years preceding that, in the the final years of the Harper government, uh, the Tories were on a bit of an austerity uh, spree of their own. So they actually not only froze, but actually reduced the number of civil servants uh, in the core service to below 200,000. So that was about about a 10% cut. Uh, but that was quickly reversed under the Liberals, and they've moved on from there. And so when they came in and decided that uh, the austerity regime with the Conservative, the Harper government, was definitely over, time to put our stamp on the civil service, let's bring in some new people. That was 2015, Patrick. That's, that's a lot of hires ago. When did they start to sort of supercharge the process? Uh, if you look at what, as the article you spoke so kindly about, there's a little graph in there, and it sort of shows the uh, the pace of hiring gradually accelerating until basically last year. Uh, now, it's still continuing on uh, and, in fact, hitting new highs. But, yeah, that, this sort of sort of uh, peak ramp-up appears to have sort of hit its, its top last year. But now we're continuing to grow and cracking on past a quarter of a million civil servants and for your readers uh, keeping track. Yeah, that, that's an increase of around uh, 33%. A third. They've increased the public service, the federal public service by one third in the past seven years. That's right. That's right. So let's, is it the pandemic? Because first of all, Patrick, we're starting to read now more as, as the world sort of writes itself and workplaces uh, at least look to reacquaint themselves with each other and employers with employees and so on. Uh, we're noting uh, just uh, sort of uh, coincidentally that the vast majority of the Canadian uh, civil service, the public sector, is still working from home. Do you know this to be the case? Uh I don't know about the percentage, but certainly a large proportion, and that is that's a key uh, a key bargaining point right now between uh, the Canada Revenue Agency and the government. That the Canada Revenue Agency is pushing for some very specific rules that would allow their work, you know, their members and the government's workers to continue to work from home. So, the big unanswered question on that front is, you know, uh, particularly given some of the situations we're seeing at airports, waiting times at the CRA. Uh, passport offices. Sure. How, how productive are you being if you're working at home? Are you really digging in for for the full eight hours or or not? You know, a question I suppose for everyone. But 
In this case, it's your dollars and my dollars that work, so we get to ask. And perfectly reasonable questions to ask, especially when it comes to glaring. uh, And this is the part where, and I think I wrote you a note about this by way of trying to persuade you to join us for this conversation. (laughs) This is where public perception actually catches up with reality, because it's pretty easy to expand the civil service quietly, as has clearly and quite successfully happened. However, folks start to notice, Patrick, when we we, we know now we've expanded. We're hiring more and more people to attend to these important details, and yet the details continue to be, or at least appear to be, unattended to. We're still having just a terrible time getting a passport and and various other just ordinary taxpayer services provided by the government of Canada, the kind you expect because you're a taxpayer, still struggling to get some of the most basic functions of the civil service back to anything resembling normal. This with incredibly expanded staffing. How do you square that circle? Well, I I think Canadians could understand two realities. One, if we were really pinching pennies and and the civil service was understaffed and service levels were suffering, I think people would get that and say, okay, well, we can either accept that or fix that. Or if we'd spent a lot of money and really expanded the civil service and everything was humming along, people might say, well, maybe that's expensive, but at least, you know, we're, we're paying for gold-plated service, but sure. we're getting gold-plated service. But uh, paying for gold-plated service and getting poor service levels is one problem. The other problem I would point out is this hiring wasn't just in things like, you know, uh, for passports or at the borders or sort of services that Canadians could touch. It was pretty much every federal department. Right. 53 out of 58. And the ones that didn't grow were generally pretty small. Um, you know, like the Copyright Board of Canada, you know, it was really on a big austerity push and it cut its 17-person staff in 2015 all the way down to 16 people in 2021. So that was one of the five federal departments that did not grow during the, so far during the Trudeau years. Five. So, so really we're talking about everyone hiring and it really... I think is in a context of the Trudeau liberal saying, ah, deficits don't matter. We're going to spend, uh, you know, they got rounds of applause when, uh, when they were elected, presumably because the civil service expected to happen exactly what happened, which is, you know, uh, you know, uh, the good times are back. Well, you know, widespread uh, spending, I think that maybe is an even bigger issue. One of the things that have been picked up upon by media and and observers is the tendency of the Trudeau government since COVID descended upon the world, Patrick, to treat the pandemic as, quote, an opportunity. And this uh, clearly is Uh, noted simply by looking at the hiring numbers, uh, especially since the beginning of the pandemic. That is, it's a measurable metric, isn't it? It sure is. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, um, I think the Trudeau government has talked about this, you know, some people talk about it in darker overtones. I think a fair assessment is they've said, hey, you know, the pandemic really demonstrated that Activist government works for Canadians, or at least you could make that case with CERB and, and other things. You could also make some counterpoints. But the point that Trudeau government would make is activist government works, so we should do more of that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, uh, and for instance, the expansion of Environment and Climate Change Canada would mm-hmm. be, I think, a good example of we're going to do more things and we need more people to do them. And, you know, fair. I mean, that's, that's a case you can make, and that's, you know, and that's a reasonable point. Uh, absolutely. Um, now, now we're moving on, uh, I think, a bit further past the early days of the pandemic when everyone was very happy for activist government. And now some of the costs of that activism are 
coming home to bear. I don't know if you've been to a grocery store lately, but that's where some of the costs are coming home to roost. That Those big dollars we splashed around in Canada and elsewhere in the world uh, have helped uh, push up inflation. So that, that largesse of 2020 is turning out to be a bit of a pain in 2022. And there's a new so political dynamic at play, too, isn't there, Patrick, with uh, Mr. Poilievre now uh, uh, sitting across the aisle from the prime minister and with no uh, uh, reluctance at all is going to start pointing to the extravagance that this represents, too. Yeah, yeah you know, Mr. Poilievre was much mocked by the Liberals and by the finance, finance minister, Christopher Freeland, for warning about inflation in late 2020, but maybe not for all the right reasons, but he was right. Inflation was a problem. Inflation is a problem. Uh, so he has that, I think, um, uh, as, a, as a pretty salient point he can hit on. And every time Canadians, uh, you know, go to the grocery store, go to, you know, buy clothing, white goods, uh, I mean, they're going to they're gonna think about that. So that is, that's a, you know, a big problem for the Liberals. Obviously, they've unveiled some what they call inflation-fighting measures. They're not. They're cost-of-living uh, fighting measures for a narrow slice of the population, which is fine. Those are you know poor people. Certainly makes sense. But for the broader population, you know, inflation is a very painful reality, and the permanent increase in the cost of living that we're going to see is going to continue to be a problem straight through to 2025 or whenever the next election. Is. No question about it. I was at the grocery store yesterday and actually complained at the checkout stand how much everything we bought costs more. Uh, by the way, let me tease your, your your most recent column, Patrick, because it too is is an eye popper. And it, the headline, friends, is tax and spend. Inflation could be history by 2025. It's political fallout won't be. The author of that, Patrick Berthauer, the uh, tax and fiscal uh, policy reporter with the Globe and Mail. Uh, Patrick, thanks ever so much for getting uh, for joining us this morning. We do appreciate it. Good to have you aboard. Uh, great to chat with you. Look forward to next time. Here's a, a, a quote from an article uh, from our next guest. Note to Justin Trudeau. Polyev's team is vicious. Take early retirement if you want to keep your sanity. But apparently the prime minister hasn't got the memo. Instead, he's pledged to run again. And the grits are girding for battle, pumping out attack ads. All part of an article entitled, I discovered firsthand the power of Polyev. Liberals should be afraid. The article written by Tasha Carradine in the National Post. Tasha joins us this morning from Toronto. Good morning and welcome back, Tasha. Oh, thanks. Great to be with you again. Well, it's good to have you with us. Last time you and I had a conversation, the conservative leadership uh, race was well and truly on. You were on Team Charest, and you were uh, actually heading to a rally in Quebec City at at that particular time. That's right. And so here we are after the thing is all over. And the subheader on that, uh, quote, if we have one takeaway from the past eight months, it's that a lot of Canadians are angry, close quote. And you go on in your article, Tasha, to talk about the ability of the Polyev side to translate that anger into political mileage. That's true. And I think that's one of the reasons that explained um, Polyev's, uh, Pierre Polyev's success is that there is a sense of alienation and disconnect um, from whether it is you want to call them elites, he calls them gatekeepers, people in, in office. Um, I think also from the media, uh, there's a lot of anti, anti-media anti campaigning that was done during the leadership, and it's continued since he's taken office a mm-hmm. bit. Uh, so, you know, mining those, those groups of discontent. 
and bring them into the conservative tent. Um, so, yes, that, that is something that Mr. Trudeau is going to have to reckon with. A lot of the anger stems from things that were done under his watch, obviously. Some that, you know, like the pandemic, vaccine mandates and other things that were done mostly by provincial governments, but people still blame the federal government for a lot of the woes that they are facing. Indeed. So uh, let's talk a little bit about where the anger is being directed these days, because uh, it, now we're, we're starting to see a little more focus. And even inside the Conservative Party, they lost they lost a senator and one MP who just simply were incapable of making the adjustment to the new reality. That's not bad, considering the size A of their presence in both the Senate and the House, and more particularly, Tasha, because of the size of memberships and the new energy brought into the party by Team Polyev. Yes. I mean, anyone who expected a big uh, stampede of people out of the gates uh, would have been disappointed. I didn't expect that personally. I think people knew what was coming uh, a few weeks before, if not a month before, the results were announced. Um, our team didn't expect it to be quite as, as significant a victory for Mr. Polyev, but in fact that makes it a bit easier. I think that's also explaining perhaps why you haven't seen people leaving the tent in numbers greater than, you know, two. I mean, that's really, it's not significant in yeah. terms of numbers at all, um, because they know that this is, the membership has spoken, right? And, and he has a clear mandate. Uh, the schism that existed between populist conservatives, it's it's, I would say, pretty much settled now that the direction that the party is going to take under him is a more populist tone. That said, he still is reaching out across the aisles, uh, so to speak, to the other side of the Conservative Party. He is meeting with, he, he had dinner with Brian Mulroney. Yeah. Um, he spoke to Josh Ray on the phone. He uh, has been meeting with, he's meeting with every single MP in caucus to talk to them as he prepares his shadow cabinet that he's going to unveil in October. So the outreach is happening Um, to keep people in the fold, and I think it's a question of focusing the message. The first couple of days, he left, as I say, a lot of the crazy at the door. Um, He did not talk about things like the WEF and and why this is a a conspiracy to have people own nothing, as some people who who believe that. He he alluded to that stuff during his run, but he's, he's not talking about that. And I think if he keeps that up, that will send a positive signal to people who are in the more centrist part of the party and also in the voter base that, you know, he's going to take issues seriously and he's going to focus on stuff like the economy. Right. Uh, I wanted to go back to your point about the media for just a second. Could it be that Pierre Polyev is taking a note or two from another Pierre who uh, was kind of top dog in this country for a while? And I'm thinking of Trudeau the first, uh, who's, mm-hmm. whose disdain, Tasha, you may recall for the media, was legendary. He absolutely hated the media. And because of that, they adored him and followed him around and, and did quoting everything he said and did and all the rest of it. But he, he had enormous disregard for the media while completely understanding how to manipulate it. Is there some of, something of that going on with Paul Yeb, do you think? That's an interesting point to raise. I've actually watched some of Pierre Trudeau's most famous or infamous exchanges with media, including the one where he said, just watch me, mm-hmm. that was, you know, the clip, uh, when asked how far he would go on the October crisis or against the FLQ in Quebec in 1969. The difference, though, is that Trudeau engaged the media. That little clip is prefaced by a discussion with a reporter where, where Trudeau ends up asking him questions for over five minutes. Mm-hmm. It goes back and forth. He was not, he engaged the media. That, that is the difference, I would say. I think that Pierre Polyev goes around the mainstream media. He has a lot of disdain for it, yes. But his, his response to that is to not engage with it, to engage on social, to engage with uh, alternative types of media, um, you know, things, outlets like the True North, for example, mm-hmm. that are, operate online. They don't have over-the-air signal. But he does engage with, um, with them. 
Um, and that is, it's a different approach. Uh, but yes, the, the root of it is the same, is that he doesn't, he doesn't believe the press gives him a fair shake. Um, and I think, you know, you can obviously, you can use that. I think it descended into a bit of a silly season this week, frankly, um, uh, you know, for the party, harping on that issue, of a reporter who had made a comment about shooting horses, right. shoot horses. Right. Okay. Uh, it's a figure of speech. And taking it to the extent that this person should essentially be, you know, canceled from the press corps in a way, I think was a bit absurd because conservatives deplore cancel culture on the left. So don't implement it on the right. But you know, um, I think, like I said, I hope the focus becomes on the issues that really matter to people, which is the economy, inflation, housing, stuff that Pierre was talking about during his leadership as well. And that's what people are really worried about on the ground. Your latest book is called The Right Path, How Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire and Take Canada Forward. We're talking about the anger that Mr. Poilievre has clearly identified and tapped into. He's also being very forthright and very frank about being a very proud conservative. Uh, That's something that one hasn't heard in this country for quite a long time, Tasha. Right, and we didn't hear it during his leadership at all. And that was something I did point out um, a couple of times um, because it, it, it bothered me that the leadership that he was running did not reference conservatism. You're running for the leader of the Conservative Party, but he was running for Prime Minister. And the folks he was talking to, strategically, I get it, the people that were he was recruiting into the party were not conservatives in the sense of they consider themselves conservative or ideologically. They were not necessarily political at all. Right. In some cases, never voted. Mm-hmm. Or they might have voted for other parties. I, I interviewed people who were supporters of Pierre who voted Green and Liberal and other in the past, sure. even NDP. Um, and so the, the, the tactic was smart, but I think now um, he has tacked back to talking about the Conservative Party, because that's going to be the party on the ballot. And that's the party that he has to rally the troops for, for people who do, to whom that does matter. And I think, like I say in the book, there are a lot of conservative principles, you know, smaller government, local government, respect for freedoms, but also responsibility, let's not forget that one, that you... That, that are solutions to the problems we're facing. And I think that you can frame the issues, that the, the solutions to populist concerns in a conservative manner and ditch the rhetoric that is more inflammatory, that upsets people in the center, who it turns them off, right, in the big cities where I'm sitting, for example. You want to make sure people feel comfortable in the conservative tent, and there's a lot of language and policies you can use to do that. Indeed. Tasha, almost out of time, but I am curious, because I, I did quote your memo to the Prime Minister <laughs> about the, the rather aggressive nature of Team Polyev. I wonder what your thoughts are uh, with this supply deal with the NDP very comfortably in position to stay for as long as he wants, at least till 2025. Do you think Justin Trudeau is going to stick around simply for the ego battle Pierre Polyev represents to him personally? I don't know. I think it's really going to be a question of where the polls go in the next couple of years. I don't think this is going to last till 2025, I but agree. I don't think it's going to disappear tomorrow. Um, you know, polls show the Conservatives have gotten a significant boost. So Mr. Trudeau will, will wait and watch. That's his prerogative. And, you know, as far as the NDP goes, they're going to have their lunch eaten from both ends. Both I agree. Conservatives going to the you know more working class labor vote in the in the NDP, and uh, the environmentalists more left of center. That's Trudeau's bailiwick. So 
I don't think they're looking forward to the next election at all. <laughs> Interesting stuff. And, of course, I'm going to talk to you uh, in a couple of weeks, I hope, about what happened in Quebec. You've written about it in, in the Post yes. this weekend, saying the Quebec election has profound implications for the rest of Canada. It's coming up a week from Monday. So can we make a date right here in front of lots of witnesses to get together <laughs> post-Quebec election for a little uh, analysis, Tasha? I would love to do that. So right. sure, yes. Give me a call. I'd be happy to break it down. All right. Layla will be on your case real soon. Thanks okay. very much for this today. Great to have you back. Thanks so much. Have the, a great weekend. The, you too. Bye. Canadian companies continue to have difficulty finding qualified employees, especially for full-time positions, according to a new survey commissioned by Express Employment Professionals. Most companies, 84% of them, say they plan to hire employees in key job categories before the end of this year. But 40% say they've been unable to fill positions that are currently open. From Express Employment Professionals, the folks that commissioned the poll, always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Brent Paul who's the president of Express Employment Professionals here in Vancouver. Brent, welcome back. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sterling. Always good to have you with us, Brent. You work both sides of the table with employees and employers, and uh, as it stands this weekend, clearly still more jobs and workers out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're, we're continuing to see a, uh, a demand in the market from employers looking to hire people. And one of the interesting things that I feel that we've seen a lot lately from businesses, both large and small, is the continued willingness for businesses to innovate and try to meet the demands of, of the worker in the market. And one of the things that I'm seeing as a challenge lately is that the businesses are willing to hire people that have, we've talked about this before, the aptitude and motivation, but maybe don't have the skills. The businesses are transforming and, and looking at themselves as maybe needing to be a bit more of a business school. Right. And what we're not seeing as much as of is the applicant, the job seeker, showing up in a way that demonstrates that through the application process. And so we're seeing resumes that are being submitted that are, you know, a demonstration of a lack of, of time, attention, and detail into what it takes to put a good resume together. Like, it's not an easy process. It's extremely challenging and frustrating, and it can be extremely difficult for a job seeker in general to put all their experience on a page, or even if they don't have experience. But the investment of whether it's Google searches, YouTube videos, uh, experts, finding better-looking templates... That, that first piece of getting your foot in the door is where we see the greatest disconnect. I mean, we, my office alone seems, sees hundreds to potentially even thousands of job seekers on a weekly basis. Sure, yeah. And the number of resumes we see that don't even warrant a call back for most people. I mean, often we'll call everybody because that's our, our job. That's the business that we're in. Mm-hmm. But a traditional business would see that resume and just reject it right away because it doesn't demonstrate any effort or energy, which if they're going to put the time and effort and energy into training you and getting up to speed, they will want to see that that will result in a return. One of the great lessons we all learned from mom while growing up, Brent, was you never, you only ever get one chance to make a good first impression. Obviously, the lesson didn't get learned by everyone, but you would you would be surprised, I suppose I am, in this ultra-competitive job market that people don't pay the kind of attention to that rudimentary detail. What do I look like to other people on paper? Uh, that's a, that's a critical first step. Yeah, I mean, again, I think sometimes people will, you know, if they don't have experience, they don't have relevant experience, or they're new to the market, 
again, like I, I think we're in a position where businesses are either have already realized or realizing that the skilled high level person they're looking for that can come in and immediately solve all their problems likely doesn't exist in the market. And if they do, you're going to be paying a lot for them. Yep. And so the business I feel is constantly willing to innovate. They're either full of these high level top performing employees that are always introspective and, and seek a new information. And also with entrepreneurs who, you know, are, are, you know, you can point the finger at all the different problems in the market, but at the end of the day, those aren't going to solve them. And yet, you know, we're seeing from the job seeker side where uh, maybe there just isn't enough of that same kind of introspective view that the, you know, the business owner, the small business has to take where it's great. Point those fingers and no matter what, it's not going to change your situation. You need to then realize how you can solve that problem. And I think, yeah, we're seeing a lot, just seeing a lot of resumes lately. I think more so uh, as I think a, a good thing is that we're seeing a lot of resumes of newly landed immigrants. And I think that, um, you know, people on work visas, and it does seem like the government has opened that door a bit more because I think it was quite shut when COVID was a much larger, significant concern. Sure was. And so we are seeing a good influx of people who are coming and they're more open to different types of jobs. But then, yes, the first thing is how they show up and create that first impression, whether, you know, I have an interesting one for internal positions we post. We say, tell me about something that's not on your resume. And, and people won't answer the question. And all I care is that you say, you know, you like sushi or you like dogs or you right. like to go for walks in the park. Just something simple that shows, A, you read the question and that you're not giving me some some answer that just, you know, is like, I'm a hard worker. It's like, okay, well, everybody can say that. Like, tell me something unique about yourself that we don't see, right? Mm-hmm. And again, this is the disconnected. You've addressed this on this program before in terms of the expectation levels on both sides of the table. As you say, on the employer side, they're realizing more now than ever before the need to acquire and keep good people and uh, be willing enough and flexible enough in their hiring practices to be able to bring on people that they know they're just going to have to commit several months to just to train up to begin to be effective. And uh, on the other side of the table, the person comes looking for the job is perhaps expecting too much out of the box Brent I, I don't I, I don't know if what, I mean when we talk to these people I don't think that they're expecting too much I just think that the employer has this equation in their head where they're you know it's gonna cost me X to bring someone on yep and if they don't feel like they're gonna get that return because of all the red flags that they've seen in the past or they've hired people that haven't worked out that you know and maybe they failed to onboard them properly. Maybe they failed to, tra- failed to train them. And so I really feel like the businesses are doing everything they can to almost build these internal business schools. But when they don't take the time on the front end to assess fit properly and make sure that the person is going to come in, be hungry, want to learn, absorb the information, take on more responsibility, the only way for them to assess that is how you show up in your you know, resume, how you show in your application package, what time and effort and energy you put in. I mean, I've seen resumes come through that have, you know, seven lines on them that say, you know, company A and this was my job with no depth, no, no explanation of what your role, responsibility was, how you contributed, like just no effort. And if that's how you're going to be in mm-hmm. this basic first piece, then you're demonstrating to the employer that you're not going to put any effort in when you're there. And that, that is like a net zero or negative equation for the employer. So it's really just about... You know, again, it's a job. It's it's an exchange for your time, effort, and energy for compensation. You know, we know it's not for a volunteer uh, opportunity. 
And, you know, how are you going to return whatever it is for the compensation you're going to get? And I think employers just want people that are going to show up, work hard. You know, I'm using air quotes that you can't see, but, you know, I don't think anyone has any unrealistic expectations that you have to come in and, you know, lift more Change than the, the appropriate world. amount. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Like they, but, but they want you to show up, show up on time, learn, you know, and, and eventually get to the point where you can, in some degree, depending on the role, perform your job autonomously without needing that support. And hopefully there's a path there for you where you can take on more and grow with the business, earn more compensation for yourself. And that is like a partnership equation where it is equally working for both parties, but it all starts of that initial exchange of I'm going to pay you to do a job, but am I able to trust that you're going to be able to do it? Right. And uh, all of that, we're out of time, uh, unfortunately. But the, the takeaway is, again, put your best foot forward. And that begins with step one. And that's presenting yourself uh, in some kind of uh, format uh, as, a, as a person with a resume that should be interviewed. Brent Paulington, always a pleasure. Thanks for this. Here's a quote from a letter written to the Minister of Health, Adrian Dix, by a group of B.C. specialists. Quote, our entire health care system is crumbling, but not enough is being done to improve specialist patient outcomes or shorten our overcrowded wait lists. If we do not work together to find solutions, specialty care in this province is going to erode even further. The group who sent the letter to Minister Dix includes cardiologists, pediatricians, transplant surgeons, many other specialties, including orthopedic surgeons. Our guest is Dr. Cassandra Lane Dealwert, who is an orthopedic surgeon in Kelowna and one of the signatories to said letter. Dr. Dealwert, good morning thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us, and I wish it was under more positive circumstances, but we've come to terms with the fact that our health care system is in tough shape, Dr. Dealwert, and right across the board, if there's one lesson every Canadian has learned from the onset of COVID is that our much-vaunted health care system really is in need of an awful lot of attention. So let's talk about specialists and wait lists, because when it comes to specialists, Dr. Dealwert, most of us relate to you through wait lists. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, getting into a specialist care always starts with a, with a family physician. Yep. So it, it, it starts with family doctor crisis that's happening right now. And so if you're lucky enough to have a family doctor uh, and they determine that you need a specialty care, which is either uh, an intervention or a complex care situation uh, that they're no longer comfortable dealing with, uh, or surgical uh, intervention, they then uh, will refer you on to a specialist. And then you're placed onto the wait list of the specialist. And depending on, on how, um, uh, how long that wait list is, it could be, I mean, on average, people are waiting about 10 months. Uh, in our province, and some people up to two years to see a, to see a specialist. And while they wait, they've got questions. They don't know what's going on with their health, be it a cancer or something of the like. Right. And the other part about it, and you've already touched on it, Dr. Dealwort, is the whole notion of the shortage of family physicians in the first place. So that critical and initial contact with a doc who says, this is beyond my pay grade, you need to see a specialist. If you can't even have that moment, then you're really uh, compounding the problem and going to end up in ER and then end up being referred to a specialist, which pretty much guarantees an even longer wait. Yeah, and that's exactly what's happening. So the, the healthcare system from, from the primary care to the ERs to long-term care and every avenue in between right now is suffering. And that's, that's a big part of this is, is every aspect of healthcare is interlinked. 
And so we rely on so many different parts of it. You know, if somebody is coming to see me, they need the family doctor's office. Then see the family doctor. Go and get an x-ray. Right now you can't even get an x-ray in in interior health for a good three months. Uh, Then you get an x-ray, you got to go back to your family doctor. Then you have to use the lab techs, and then you have to get into my office. There's so many things that interlink, and on every step of the way, there's a weight, weight that is associated with that. Imagine if it was the cancer you were dealing with and had to wait every step of the way. Exactly. So in terms of dealing with the minister and bringing the specifics that you wanted to to Mr. Dix's attention, uh, you certainly have captured the imagination of the province. Uh, Have you had any response, by the way, from the health ministry at all since you submitted this letter? Uh, unfortunately not. Uh, there's, there's been uh, small statements released to media, but there's been absolutely no attention uh, to the signatories of the letter. Uh, what I will say is it's getting, it's getting public attention, yep. and there's more and more people signing the letter, and it's on the Consultant Specialist of BC website. And the more signatures we get from both uh, physicians and patients and uh, medical staff, the more the more clout we might have with the government to actually sit down and have a discussion. Uh, again, I'm quoting from the letter you wrote or co-authored uh, to Minister Dix. Quote, it is soul destroying to be unable to provide the specialty care that B.C. patients need and deserve. We request a meeting with you emergently. And that is not a word we use lightly. Close quote. Uh, That was why I was uh, sort of poking for responses from the ministry, because that's a a fairly strident request. It is. It is. I mean, if you think about emergencies in our province, last year, the uh, the Coquihalla was washed out and there was a state of emergency. Right. And there was uh, government and engineers and laborers and everybody got together and and it was a miracle what they had uh, performed in order to get uh, the road back up and running yep. and 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 healthcare is no different we're living every single day in a state of emergency in this province and across canada and we need to see that we need to call that out and we need to meet together to try and uh, and fix it because you know when it when it comes down to it every single patient be it you don't have a family doctor or on a specialist wait list this is touching everybody in our province. Dr. Dilwert, uh, you are quoted in The Sun as saying, we just want a seat at the table. Assuming you're granted that request, what do you add to the conversation? I think the ministry is in many ways going, oh, yet another group demanding even more money. We only have a finite amount in the first place. Is that what you're after? Well, you know, you can't just throw money at a broken system. So, of course, there's always money that has to go into changing resources, but we actually need to innovate. We need to find a way to actually change the way we deliver care so we can sustainably improve the delivery of care in our province. If you just throw a bunch of money at a broken system, that money will get get eaten up real quick yep. and there will be no, no long-term changes. So you're advocating some pretty significant systemic changes um, and, and, again, ultimately – to be more to create a more cost efficient system once the changes are in effect system wide correct exactly i mean there's so many levels of efficiency we could we could change and make better uh, but how you have to have that conversation because what i don't i'm an orthopedic surgeon mm-hmm. i had no don't know the first thing about making pediatrics function better nor do I know the first thing about how to uh, bring down the x-ray wait list. And I admit that I don't know those things, and that's why I've reached out and asked those people what they need. And that's exactly what I'm asking of the minister. I can't expect him to know all of the things that are needed to improve care in this province because I don't even know. But if you have the right seat at the right people at the table and you can have those conversations and brainstorm together, 
how you come through this. That's the only way out of this. I don't see it happening any other way. Do you see, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for your time this morning, Dr. Dealwert, and a final question to you. Do you see or do you sense somewhere in that mix any degree of willingness to create, A, the seat at the table that you and your group are requesting, and B, use that to their advantage to ultimately move the discussion forward? You know, we have had some positive uh, movement in the last couple of days, and, and, and Doctors of BC, which is our uh, governing body, is now behind us, which is a huge, which is a huge um, uh, step in the right direction. Sure. But at the end of the day, we need to get to the ministry level, uh, and that's why we're out here uh, basically begging uh, to have that conversation. Well, you, you, it's a pretty classy job of begging you're doing because you've certainly captured the attention of a lot of taxpayers and, of course, patients province-wide, Dr. Dealwert, and uh, we wish you considerable success in at least getting that seat at the table and moving the the, uh, the conversation beyond, oh, let's just throw more money at it. Exactly. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.